This is an ABC podcast. On Science Friction Summer, it's Natasha Mitchell wishing you a 2021 without plague or pestilence as we leave behind the year that was where a plague pretty much upended all of our lives. Before COVID-19, though, I got to travel to the Perth Hills in search of some beautiful flesh-eating beings. So it's a warm, dry day in Kalamunda National Park with bright blue sky above, yellow earth crunchy underfoot. Can you see the yellowish little shrubby Oh, yes. Yeah. Ah, should we go up? Yes. Laura and I are looking for something special in the bush. It's tiny but shiny, and so it should catch her seasoned eye. Now, there's the native beer bottle. Rare and precious botanical specimen, not. Oh, that's a tremendous one. So this is a Drosera gigantea, and it's named because it's pretty giant. It is. That's about 50, 60 centimetres high. Yeah. And it's like a little mini tree. It is, yeah. Like, these are actually the leaves of the plant. Yeah. So the, the flowers are up the very top here, just in bud, I think, at the moment. But the leaves are, they do look like a flower. They look like a little sun to me. And so it's a little pad that is surrounded by sticky hairs. And what you'll notice is that on some of them, the sticky hairs have wrapped around into the centre. And they'll... Ah. Yeah. Can you see the little... Dinner. Gross sort of (laughs) bug remains in the middle there. And then others are, are out ready to catch something new. So hi, my name's Laura Skates and I'm a botanist from Western Australia and I'm doing my PhD on carnivorous plants. But this young botanist has an alter ego. Flora Skates. <laughs> yeah, so that's my Twitter and Instagram, Flora, because it rhymes with Laura and it's I'm all about plants, so... More than that, Laura, aka Flora Skates, is all about plants that eat flesh. We always tend to see carnivorous plants depicted as these sort of man-eating monsters, aliens from outer space. It got out. It came to life and it got out. You've got Day of the Triffids, Little Shop of Horrors, that sort of thing. It's like worms. Cut them in half and you can't kill them. But it even goes back much earlier than that. I assure you it's not for the greater glory of science. I just want us to survive. We will. Damn it all, I'm not even a botanist. So there was this story of a... German explorer in the Madagascan jungle. Is it a plant or an animal? Coming across this atrocious cannibal tree. Doesn't seem to have any central nervous system. Which had these serpent-like branches which captured a poor woman and coiled its branches around and around her. I don't think that there is actually this atrocious cannibal tree. (laughs) Or if anyone's gone to find it, maybe they've just not come back. (laughs) All plants move. They don't usually pull themselves out of the ground and chase you. You see the depiction of this atrocious cannibal tree. It looks so much like a drosera in the way that it's got those serpent-like branches that are like the sticky glands of a drosera. And the way that they wrap around and coil around the poor woman is the same way that these drosera wrap around the insect prey. But yeah, they, they always get painted as these vicious creatures. I do tend to notice that a lot of the time the victims in these stories are women. I don't like that aspect. (laughs) Yeah, there's a whole gendered story to be 
talked about here, I think. Definitely. And I mean, often when we do talk about carnivorous plants, we often hear about Charles Darwin because Darwin did write the first scientific book all about carnivorous plants, gave the first scientific evidence that they are actually able to capture and digest insect prey. But there's been a lot of amazing women who have also contributed to carnivorous plant science and our understanding of ecology throughout history. And yeah, I'm really interested in their stories as well. And so am I. This week, we are in WA, which incredibly is home to up to a third of the world's carnivorous plant species. I want to find out why that is and how they've managed to survive in such an intense environment. And next week, I got totally caught up in a saga full of twists and turns and tendrils about the life of just one carnivorous woman. We're going to venture from the hilltop home of an internationally renowned jeweller. He just didn't want to share. He wanted all the glory for himself. I really can't go into the mind of Charles Gardner, but he certainly did not like Mother and he made life very difficult for her. We'll head deep into the heart of a magnificent morgue and museum for plants. So we're entering a quarantine area now. Okay, we're heading up the stairs now. <laughs> and uh... oh, so we're walking into a cooler space here. Okay. All right, so we're walking through stack number four, vault number four. And we're in the Drosseraceae here, so it's the family where family where Drosera occurs. Down the garden path we'll go into an enchanted studio of one of Australia's foremost botanical artists. They creep and, and sparkle. One, the large one, that creeps up over bushes and in masses and then it, it, they all sparkle with all that sticky death and into a world of artists who just might have become scientists given half the chance, or maybe they already were. Yes, he sought to, I suppose, separate the, the scientific study of botany, which is the realm of men, uh, to botanising botanical art, which he saw as the realm of women. Laura Skates is part of a new generation of scientists whose passion for plants is liberated from those intellectual shackles that women experienced in the past. And I don't know about you, but did you feed flies to your Venus flytrap as a kid and wonder what the hell is a plant doing eating an animal? How is that even possible? They totally turn the tables on the natural order of things. And I mean, maybe there's an element of relating to these plants maybe that they eat meat although of course not everyone eats meat but yeah I think it's just that fascination with these plants that are so in some ways animal-like even Charles Darwin wrote about Drosera that I think he said it's a wonderful plant or rather a most sagacious animal sagacious just meaning clever I guess yeah. so yeah he he wrote about how animal-like these plants are and you know they are they can be quite sort of active in the way that they capture things you know they they eat flesh they're the sort of plants that we can see as being almost perhaps, human yeah yeah almost human <laughs> if i was a fly i'm hoping one might land while we're here <laughs> if i was a fly and i landed on one of those sundew leaves drosera leaves mm -hmm. 
describe what would happen to me? Well, you would probably try to escape, um, but you would find that in doing that, more of the sticky hairs start covering you. And eventually the sticky hairs start to actually wrap around you. So you can see one fly here that's... Oh, it's sort of dive-bombed into the <laughs> head first. the leaf, head first. <laughs> yeah, and it got stuck. And then, yeah, all the little sticky hairs wrapped directly around. And what happens then is that the drosera releases digestive enzymes, kind of the same as when you're digesting food in your belly, and it'll start breaking down the fly. The plant will digest the sort of you know, the gooey centre of the of the insect, take what it needs, and then the exoskeleton, once the leaves have opened up again, the exoskeleton will just pop out. Pop out, drop on the ground and become fertiliser for some other little scarab beetle yeah. or something, I don't know. <laughs> That's it, yeah, circle of life. One woman who spends days, weeks, months, often in one place, studying the minutiae of this circle of life, including WA's carnivorous plants, is the acclaimed West Australian botanical artist, Philippa Nikolinski. Hello. This is like an enchanted garden. Hello, Natasha. <laughs> it's Philippa here. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to meet you. And you too. Come uh, in. I'm Philippa Nikolinski. I'm a wildlife artist and happy to show you into my studio. I come down here every day. When I'm not in the bush, I'm down here every single day from 7.30 working. This is Philippa's Shady Garden studio in Perth, but in fact the whole of Western Australia is effectively her back garden. And above us hangs this vast map of the state with ant-like trails inked across it all over. All the places she's travelled over the last 50 years alone and with her husband Alex and always with her sketchbooks. Desert country was where Philippa began life too. I grew up in... Kalgoorlie or Femiston on the Golden Mile, right next to a poppet head in the dust and the dirt and the grime and the rocks and everything else with very, very few trees. The whole area had been denuded of trees with the woodliners using the wood for the mines. But every few years after rain, we'd ride our bike out into the bush and there'd just be carpets of everlastings mm. and eremophilas that I'd always pick a, a bunch and take home to mum. And I guess that was the start and the wonder of how these things survived. And I've always focused then on what I call my red earth country. I'm much happier in the desert, not in the forest. And these hung down this is, this is an, a reproduction because the original's in, in Philippines. The lemon-flowered mallee. And, but Kalgoorlie have them often as street trees, which is quite, is fantastic. Splayed out in front of us are these vast, stunning, absolutely stunning drawings of Banksia, eucalypts and a whole lot more. The detail in Philippa Nikolinski's artworks is breathtaking. Enchanted Forest, 2017, the Enchanted. And so this would be, what would be... If I've stopped somewhere just for an overnighter and see something, I can stay there for two, three or four weeks and, and be part of the landscape, be part of life, be part of 
everything that's happening and watching every... I've sat in front of a, a bush for a whole day with my camera and watched everything that came to that bush. The bees, the flower flies, the mites, the everything, the birds. And just understanding what's needed for that plant to survive. At one stage, I had a work which I was going to call for the seeker who walks. And that was everything, the tiny little things all over the ground. Because mm. when you look at books of wildflower photographs and things, they're always enlarged. And they always look so dramatic. But when you go and find them, they're tiny, they're exquisite. And you, I actually talk to them and say, why are you so beautiful and so small? <laughs> And Philippa has an eagle eye for the incredible diversity of carnivorous plants in Western Australia too. I like to try and catch them as they're curling over a, an insect, <laughs> watching life-death experience. <laughs> the full gothic spectacle. <laughs> and they have beautiful flowers, soft petals, which bring the insects too. And the tiny little ones are so tiny you really do have to get down on your hands and knees with a magnifying glass to have a look at them. Which is pretty much what botanist Laura Skates and I are doing right now back in the Perth Hills. We are a nose length away from the ground, staring at this gorgeous teeny tiny bloom springing up from the stones and scrub. Well, it's a bright orange. It's like an iridescent kind of orange flower. It's about the size of a $2 coin, I guess. Five petals and black sort of in the centre. And if you look down... Oh, yeah, right. So I'm following the stem down from this little orange flower Oops. down to the base. It's like a little cosmos down there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you can just see the tiny little leaves down there. And, yeah, they're, you know, maybe a few millimetres wide each little leaf. And that's a little pygmy drosera. So these are the, the tiniest kind and they're just they're just stunning. What are they capturing? Little mites and things? Yeah so they'll be capturing teeny tiny little crawling sort of mites and other little insects like that. And yet some of the ones in the Kimberley are just big and gorgeous and there's there's drosser in the desert too on near the water holes and up on the rocks and in the wet seeps between the sand dunes, you get this Drosser indica, which has these beautiful curling leaves. And they're just so elegant and they sparkle. If you, you get them in the early morning and the sun gets on them all the way across the wet, it's just beautiful. Sort of delicate but violent. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> death. <laughs> WA is actually a global centre of carnivorous plant diversity. We have about a third of the world's carnivorous plant species right here, both in the southwest corner and up in the sort of northern Kimberley region. A third of the world's carnivorous plants. There's over 800 species in the world, yeah? Yes. And yeah, we've got yeah maybe a quarter or a third of them here in WA. So it's very special. Why? Why so many carnivorous plants in WA? Definitely part of the reason why would be the fact that we've got such old ancient soils. So, you know, WA is a very ancient landscape and our soils have had a long time to 
have all their nutrients leached away. So a lot of our plants have had to adapt to get their nutrients in an unusual way and being carnivorous is just one of those ways that they can do it. It's really incredible because we've had such a long history of isolation. Renowned botanist Dr Neville Marchant was director of the West Australian Herbarium for many years. In fact, as you'll hear next week, he started there as just a boy, a boy in complete love with carnivorous plants, which is when he first met the extraordinary Rika Erickson, whose story I'm going to be chasing down next week. He's lucky enough to even have a carnivorous plant named after him, Drosera marchanti. I'm totally jealous of that, I have to admit. Coming up from Gondwana land when it broke up and Australia moved northwards, Western Australia was effectively separated from the rest of the world, even the rest of Australia. And plants just developed their own characteristics, their own species developed out of a stock which was very Australian and certainly Gondwanan in origin. And I think what happened there was that there are so many issues involved that the flowers and plants of Western Australia, in collaboration with all sorts of other organisms, fungi, etc., as well as the animals and pollination in particular, that the situation was just right for there to be a, a fantastic explosion of species in the southwest. And Drosseras were amongst those. And certainly what happened with our Drosseras, our sundews, is that they've really adapted to living in a Mediterranean type climate, that is dry summers and wet winters. I watched their life. <laughs> how they have survived and it's the old and the the battered and the yes the ancient but also the new when when there's been a fire and the new comes through and it is so amazing that the when there's been a fire and it's just black mm. and then every new little plant has its moment of glory then and you can see it and you can find it and you can see things that you've not seen before. And you think, how long have those seeds been sitting there waiting for this moment? Likewise, carnivorous plants have adapted to Western Australia's extreme climate and landscapes in all sorts of wild ways. Yeah, so carnivorous plants, are, a lot of them are so well adapted to not only capturing prey but also attracting them. Some of them use scents like a kind of honey-like or smelly kind of garbage sort of scent. Some of them have amazing UV light sort of patterns which the insects can see and directs them into the trap. The sticky plants or adhesive traps, sticky hairs, the pitfall trap, little cup with a little lid and insects will climb up the side of the cup, try and get some nectar at the back of the lid and then they'll find that the rim of the cup is quite slippery and they will topple Zom. in. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, there's a pool of digestive juices just waiting for them. The one that is probably the most famous would be the Venus flytrap. Yeah. They've got that little snap trap where their leaves shut together really quick around the prey. So Venus flytraps are endemic to North and South Carolina in the US. So we've also got the Utricularia. It's like a little kind of ladder or kind of like a bag, I guess, with a trap door. Usually they're either underwater or in very, very moist soil and water will rush in. It's like a vacuum that 
pulls the water in and pulls the prey in as well. Bloody terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> if you were that bug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and the last kind are the carnivorous plants that have a corkscrew trap. And it's basically like a modified leaf underground that's kind of like a coil. If an insect starts going inside the coil, the only way it can go is forward because there's backwards facing hairs so it can't back back. It's a bit oh. creepy, isn't it? <laughs> The big question of your PhD, though, is how carnivorous are the carnivorous plants that you're studying, yeah? Yes, that's it. Yeah, so I, I want to know basically how much do they actually rely on the prey that they capture to get the nutrients they need? Sorry, <laughs> flies. <laughs> <laughs> Wish I had a drosera right here to catch them. Yeah, I want to see whether there are patterns in how carnivorous, different carnivorous plants are. Do we see that the ones that are itty-bitty are a bit less... Oh, so we've got a little friend coming to join our interview. Bobtail lizard. <laughs> They're super cute. I did hear some rustling. Looks like a stumpy tail. <laughs> I thought, hmm, that's a snake that's just behind you. <laughs> we might want to pause the interview. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to look at how much the carnivorous plants actually rely on the prey that they're catching because they can get nutrients from the soil through their roots, but they can also get nutrients from the prey that they catch with their leaves. Uh, and I want to see what that sort of nutrient balance is like and whether there are any patterns, you know, are some carnivorous plants more carnivorous than others are and why are they? So I'm using stable isotope techniques. Some elements like nitrogen, for example, an essential nutrient, have different kind of versions of their atom, some which have an extra neutron in their atom, which just makes them a little bit heavier. Doesn't change them chemically, just a bit heavier. You know, if we took a hair sample from a vegetarian person and a person that prefers eating a lot of meat, you would actually see in their hair different levels of that nitrogen isotope. So the meat eater would have a higher level of the heavier nitrogen isotope. So especially the itty bitty little carnivorous plants, don't really seem to be getting a lot of nitrogen from prey. They're not that much different to non-carnivorous plants. For me, what's interesting is why would they then be carnivorous? Um, what's it's because they've had to put a whole lot of uh, effort and energy into growing carnivorous features that allow them to consume prey. And if they're not extracting as much nutrient from prey, then what's the point of putting all that growing energy into something special like that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, amazing. I mean, amazing, really, isn't it? Yeah. That you get to do this work. Oh, yeah. I feel very, very lucky that I've been able to do this research. You talk about the idea of plant blindness. A lot of people maybe don't really actually see plants in their environment. They maybe see it as a bit of a background, you know, or as a side salad. You know, if you look out into the bushland, you might just see a bunch of green in reality, there are so many different plant species that make up that green. Plants are so vital to life on Earth and in themselves they're a vital component of life on Earth. Plants can provide food and habitat and all sorts of other resources, but even just of themselves they're you know, an intrinsic part of biodiversity and especially here in WA where we do have such an incredible biodiversity, it's important that we protect that because it's really special. You know, a lot of carnivorous plants are unfortunately threatened by things like climate change and habitat loss and pollution, but also by poaching. 
Often when you hear about poaching, you might think of like rhinos or other animals like that, but it happens to plants as well, where people might go out to a wild place and dig them up to take them home, but you're really taking them away from their natural habitat. I think it's a heritage we've got. Uh, the flora of Western Australia is absolutely incredible. And yet people in buildings, say, land north and south of Perth in blocks, they clear it. It was clear or develop a bust. Then sometimes they proceed to go to nurseries and buy some of the same sorts of species back again, uh, which is insane really. And you've just got to walk through the bush sometimes, not drive through at 110 kilometres an hour, but walk through and stop and go and look at the diversity and the, fa the fact that things can cope in that incredibly dry sand when you go north of Perth and yet flower so fantastically. And an awful lot of people with four-wheel drives that just feel they can go anywhere and they drive up onto the rocks, they drive across the moss mats. The moss mats will take forever to regenerate. There's this feeling, I've got a, got a four-wheel drive, I've got to go everywhere not realising what they're squashing underneath that's probably not going to come back in our lifetime. Every step you take, you'll find something new. I really try to make people look and observe. Yes, they do have blindness, except for roses. <laughs> I love roses. <laughs> but no, I wish they'd take much more notice and be more caring of what we have in the bush because what we have is so special. It's unique. It's nowhere else in the world what we have. Thanks to botanical artist Philippa Nikolinski and botanists Laura Skates and Dr Neville Marchant. Next show, you'll want to join me for uh, this curious carnivorous saga. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell or email via the Science Friction website and all hail to Australia's incredible native plants, especially in 2020. Turns out it's the UN year of plant health. And then a pandemic got in the way, hey? You take care. Catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.